If you have your Bible with you, uh, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you didn't bring one or need to borrow one, just raise up your hand. We'll get you one. Anybody need a Bible this morning? Y'all got one? Good. We take the study of the scriptures very serious. I know that when I walk out of here, you're going to forget everything. Or when you walk out of here, you're going to forget everything I said. But you will remember God's word. He promises his word will not return void. And he doesn't make that promise on my commentary about his word. So I encourage you guys, open up the scriptures, read them, studying them along with us. All right. Second Corinthians. We're, we studied through 1 Corinthians. Now we're into 2 Corinthians. This morning we'll be picking up in chapter 2, uh, verse 12. Before we do, let me give you a little bit of background as to where we're at in the scriptures. The church there in Corinth had been planted by the Apostle Paul. Unfortunately, the church had gone, well, it had gone a little bit astray. It had allowed some things of the world to creep into the church, and what a disaster that can be. Things like division, things like false doctrine, things like sexual immorality, and many other worldly things had seeped into the church in Corinth, and it was corrupting the people as well as the church there. So Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians in an attempt to correct their behavior. They had asked some questions. He wanted to answer them. He wanted to tell them how the church should be behaving. But it wasn't well received. It wasn't immediately received, should I say. So Paul had made a visit to Corinth. He left Ephesus. He came to Corinth. And he tells us about that visit. And that visit was extremely sorrowful. He had to come rebuke a body of people that he loved. He had to tell them that the way they were doing things was not biblical or unscriptural or not the way the Lord would have them to be done. That's a very difficult situation, both for the one that has to do it, but also for the one that has to receive it. So he did that. At the end of chapter 1, at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth why he had not come to see them again. There were some accusations, Paul doesn't care about us. He just wants us, there's, he's just seeking money. He's just, he doesn't really love us. But what Paul tells us, he says, I desired to spare them the great sorrow of my coming again. In other words, I knew how they were living. I knew how they were behaving. If I was to come again, it would be no different than my last visit. I didn't want to have to go through that. And I certainly didn't want to put them through it. It was just too painful. Last week, at the beginning of, uh, of verse 3 of chapter 2, we saw the church we saw Paul tell the church something very, very important. He told, them, he, was, he, he told them how to restore a fallen brother. You see, back in 1 Corinthians, he had told the church there was a man in their fellowship, in their congregation, who was involved in sexual immorality. And he told the church, put him out of the church. He has no business being there. But what happened was, is that man was put out of the church, and like, just like the Apostle Paul had asked. And then what happened was, is as, as, after he was put out, sometime afterwards, he repented. He realized my ways are wrong, and he turned back, and he came back to the church, but the church wasn't willing to forgive. The church kept him on the outside, and the apostle Paul, there at the end of, in, in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, he told them, he was explaining how to restore this man back into fellowship. You see, church discipline, and we talked about it last week, is a very real thing, but the goal of church discipline is always repentance followed by restoration. It's for the person to restore them, their relationship with the Lord and then repent, restore the relationship with the Lord, and then restore the relationship with the church. It's not meant to send them to the church down the street. It's not that you can't get along here, so I'll just find another church. It's to keep them in the fellowship that way. 
That's what the Apostle Paul talked about last week. They had put him out of the church publicly. They needed to restore and forgive him publicly as well. Too many churches missed that last step. They'll put him out, but they won't restore him publicly. They won't accept them back in. Once the repentance, it has to be repentant, but once the repentance happens, they need to bring them back in. And now this morning, as we come to verse 12 of chapter 2, we're going to see the Apostle Paul struggle. You're going to see his humanness. The Apostle Paul was a pastor. He's going to give thanks to the Lord in this morning's message. But what I like best is we're going to see as he pens so many of these letters that are scriptures to us. He did it through struggling, through difficulty. He did, he, he, he's learning, and as he learns through his own struggles, he's writing to us. You're going to get to watch the Apostle Paul in his humanness this morning. Pick up with me. I'm going to read in verse 12 down to verse 17. If you'll just follow along, we'll come back and talk about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord... I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one We are the aroma of death leading to death. To the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. In the book of Acts, chapter 19 and into into chapter 20, we learn that the Apostle Paul was ministering in Ephesus. And he left Ephesus and he headed for Macedonia. But why did he leave Ephesus? Chapter 19 of Acts tells us that there was a great work of the Lord going on there. People were getting saved. People were turning away from their sin. As a result of the revival that was happening in Ephesus, well, all the guys that made those little idols, those false idols or those false gods, their business took a big hit. They became angry because their pocketbooks were affected. People were worshiping the true God, not the false God. They couldn't sell their product. Their income is decreasing, and they're not happy. So what they did is they started a riot. They brought up charges against the Apostle Paul. They created a riot. They wanted to get him out of town. Eventually, Paul left, and he went on to Macedonia. It's likely that on his way to Macedonia, after leaving Ephesus, is right where we're at in the Scriptures. He stopped off at Troas. He stopped there at Troas on his way to Macedonia. He'd been there before during his second missionary journey, but the Spirit had sent him on somewhere else. And as Paul came to Troas, there in the Scriptures this morning, it tells us there in verse 12, the Lord opened a door for Paul to preach the gospel. The Lord opened a door. Paul didn't open a door. The Lord opened a door. I like this idea of an open door. It's used in several places throughout Scripture to explain opportunities to preach the gospel provided by the Lord. The Lord is the one providing the opportunity. In Acts chapter 14, verse 27, it says, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Aren't you glad the Lord opened that door? Because most of us aren't Jewish this morning. There may be a few, but most of us are Gentiles. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, Paul is describing the opportunity for ministry in Ephesus, and he says, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. There are always adversaries in ministry, but the door has to be opened by the Lord. When Paul was in prison and asking for prayer from the church in Colossae, Paul said, Pray that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mysteries of Christ for which I am also in chains. I think it's important for us as Christians, for us as believers, for those of us that are, to understand or to take notice who opened the door. Who opened the door? The Lord opened the door. In all of these cases, the Lord is giving the direction and the men are just simply following. Sometimes in ministry, sometimes in our, in our service, we feel the need to, well, do it ourselves. We need to make it happen, especially when it comes to the gospel sometimes. I'm not against in any way we should share the gospel with anybody that would listen, but I don't think we need to run around kicking in doors, making people hear the gospel, forcing them to hear the gospel. Let the Lord open the door. Let the Lord do the work. Let him prepare the hearts before you get there. Let him share with the people. You see, we don't need to be those kinds of Christians who are turning people off. Amen. We need to be people who are attracting people to the Lord because they see what the Lord is doing in our life. They see how we're growing. They see what he's doing through us. And it's also important to note that not every open door is from the Lord. Right. You see, we have an obligation as believers to be followers of Jesus Christ. Yes. That means he's leading. That means we need to follow his lead. Not every door that opens in your life, not every opportunity is from the Lord. You must not forget. There's an enemy that wants you to pull you away from the work of God. And he will open doors that sound good, look good, and even feel good. But they're not necessarily from the Lord. As Paul is preaching the gospel there in Troas with the open door, he's also doing something else. He's looking for his friend Titus i got to find Titus. Anybody seen Titus? Where's Titus? Anybody heard from Titus? And when Paul couldn't find Titus, it says there in verse 13, it says, I had no rest in my spirit. You ever been there? You ever had a restless spirit? Not, I have no peace. There's anxiety. There's depression. Whatever it is, my spirit is not at peace. It is not at rest. Paul's preaching. People are getting saved. Ministry is happening. You'd say, Paul, it's successful. And Paul goes, no, I've got no rest in my spirit. I can't find Titus. I need to find my friend Titus. Where's Titus? Has anybody seen Titus? Why does he care so much about Titus? Because Titus had been sent to Corinth to find out how the church in Corinth was doing. Paul wanted to find Titus because he wanted to say, did they receive the letter? Are they repentant? What's going on? I love those people. I care about those people. I got to find Titus to find out what's going on down there in Corinth. You know what I find interesting? Here in the scriptures, we see that Paul was willing to forego an open door of ministry. Most pastors, oh, ministry's happened, I'm not leaving. Wait till the the church starts to dwindle, then I'll leave. Then I'll go find a new church. There's an open door to ministry. People are getting saved there, and Paul goes, I gotta go. I gotta go to Macedonia. I gotta go find my friend Timothy. He's willing to walk away from what the Lord was doing, and I believe it was the Lord's will. The Lord was leading him in this. But if you were to look at the circumstances, logically, stay there, Paul. Everything's happening there. And he goes, no, I've got to go find Timothy. I've got to go to Macedonia. I'm off to Macedonia. I find it absolutely amazing. He's so concerned about the church in Corinth. He's not focused on what's happening right now. Oftentimes, or it would be easy for Paul to say, who cares about the church in Corinth? After all, they're just a bunch of heathen backsliders. 
They got all kinds of things wrong. They're not listening. I've been there. It was miserable. Just write them off. Let's do what the Lord's doing here in Troas. That's not Paul's heart. That's not a good pastor's heart. That, that Paul goes, I care about those people. I don't care that they've mistreated me. I don't care that they're not listening to me. I'm the ones that led them to Christ, and they are fruit of my work. I've got to hear how they're doing. So he does. He heads off to Macedonia. Paul, the apostle, the guy who wrote, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That was Philippians chapter 4, uh, if you're interested. The guy that wrote that is not living that at the moment. He's not there yet. He hasn't, he's not living it out in his life. He's anxious. He's worried. He's concerned. i got to find Timothy to find out what's going on. Just like you and me, Paul was human. And much of what he writes to us in the New Testament, if not all of it, comes from the things that he's experienced, the things that he's walked through. Paul was just like you and me. And you know what? In ministry, there are moments in ministry, there are days in faith, there are difficult seasons in the Christian life, aren't there? It is absolutely difficult sometimes. You might feel defeated. You might feel anxious. You might feel depressed. You might feel worried. You might feel feel fatigued. Know you're in good company. The Apostle Paul felt the same way. The Apostle Paul felt the exact same way. In fact, I want to read to you what Charles Spurgeon said about his very own life. He said this, I am the subject of depression, so fearful that I hope none of you ever get back to such extremes of wretchedness as I go. But I always get back again by this. I know that I trust Christ. I have no reliance but in him. If he fails, I shall fail with him. But if he does not, I shall not. Because he lives, I shall live also. And I spring to my legs again and I fight with my depression of spirit and I get the victory through it. As so many you do and so many of you must for there is no other way of escaping it. Fighting through it is what he's talking about there. In the midst of this difficult situation, in the midst of his uncertainty of what's going on in Corinth, in the midst of a prospering ministry, the Apostle Paul leaves Troas and goes to Macedonia. And look what he writes there in verse 14. He goes from an apparent defeat to victory. He says, verse 14, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, And through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Even in the midst of uncertainty, even perhaps being anxious, even without rest in his spirit, Paul leaves that experience of despair and he makes a choice. He chooses to give thanks to God. He chooses to give worship to God, not based on his circumstance, but based on who God is. It's a choice that you have to make too. You're going to find yourself in hard situations. You're going to find yourself difficult, miserable, anxious, depressed, whatever it is. Will you choose to give thanks to him in that time? The Apostle Paul did. Will you choose it or will you just choose to, well, I'm going to have my own little pity party. And I'm going to tell everyone about you so you'll feel bad for me. That's not what the Apostle Paul did. I want you to notice, there's things he did. He gave thanks, but he gave thanks for two very specific things there. Number one, he said, 
that God will always lead us in triumph in Christ. And number two, through us, God will always diffuse the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Those are two great promises of the Lord. The first one, Paul's giving thanks because he eventually found rest. He would eventually find his brother Titus. He would eventually become triumphant. He would meet up with Titus. And as he's writing this letter, he's thinking back. I remember how I felt. But then, going forward, he finds Titus. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, I'm just going to read to you what he wrote about his time when he finds Titus. He says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Maybe you can relate. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. The Apostle Paul, in a difficult situation, chose to follow the Lord, and eventually he's comforted. He's victorious because Titus comes to him, and you know what Titus says? He says, Paul, the church in Corinth is doing better. They're not mad at you. They don't hate you. They, they, they have zeal for you. They like you. They're taking your letters and your, your correction. They're heeding it, and they're growing spiritually. And Paul goes, oh, that's so amazing. I'm so glad I didn't write them off. I'm so glad I, I kept pursuing them. But let me show you how this works in your life. Paul makes a statement there. He says, God always leads us in triumph. That's victory in Christ Jesus. Always, always. Notice that word, always. God always, circle it, underline it, highlight it, whatever you do so you'll go back and remember it and see it next time. Always leads us in triumph. Paul found triumph when he was led by God in Christ. Paul found victory when he was led by God in Christ. In order to be led into triumph, do you know what you have to do? You have to follow. You have to follow. You have, he has to lead. We have to be the ones following. Not us following, saying, come on, God, come alongside of me and accomplish this. It's, Lord, which way do you want me to go? You see, maybe you're like the Apostle Paul when he left Troas. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe it's not bad. Maybe you're just worried about something good coming up. Maybe there's stress over something, a new job or whatever it is. Maybe there's something in your life. There's, something's going on. I want to ask you the question, are you following? Amen. Or are you leading? Amen. Who's leading your life? Is it you or is it him? Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Amen. Now, I have noticed in my time as a pastor, and it's going on hard to believe, but almost 10 years now. There are some Christians who always live a life or live a consistent life of defeat. They're always, always failing, always struggling, always walking around defeated with their head hung down. You want to know why? They're not following Christ. Because the scripture just told us if we're following, if we're being led by God, we're, not, we're guaranteed victory. It doesn't mean your situation's going to change. It doesn't mean, oh, I'll, I'll, you mean I'll get better and I'll be healed? Not necessarily. He may choose to heal you or he may not. He may keep you there for the rest of your life. But will you let him lead you through that for the rest of your life? Because if he leads you, he'll strengthen you and he'll hold you up and he'll encourage you and he'll walk through it with you. You see, 
Some people want to follow God. They say, I'll follow God. But what they really want to do is they want to follow God on their own terms. In other words, God, here's my list that I want you to do. Here's what I want you to accomplish in my life. Here's what I think is important. I want you to do it. And if you'll do these things, then I believe I'll be victorious, Lord. You know the difference between you and him is he knows what will make you victorious and you only believe it. You think you know. Some people follow God at a distance. Oh, I don't want to get too close. I'm going to to back off a little. Peter did that. Remember after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? It says he followed at a distance. Remember what happened to Peter? He denied knowing him. Three times, the rooster crowed, Jesus looked at him, and he wept, went out and wept bitterly. He followed at a distance. Some people follow God through someone else's relationship. Oh, I go to church with my wife. I'm following through her. She's okay, I'm okay. Oh, I go to church through my husband. I'm only here because he makes me come. Or I'm only here. I go through my mom or my dad. I get, my relationship with God is based on my mom or my dad's relationship with God. That's, that won't work. That, that doesn't work that way. It's got to be your relationship. As Christians, we're not called to live a defeated life we're called to live a victorious life and that victory is found in following the lord god will always lead you in triumph in christ but you must follow that's the responsibility you have and if you follow you'll be triumphant maybe this morning you are going through something difficult then you should underline this promise you should highlight this verse that you are guaranteed victory and all you have to do is follow. And when you choose to follow the Lord, it takes all the stress off of you. Because you don't... (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Because you don't have to be the one figuring it all out. You can just say, Lord, what do you want me to do? How is it that you want me to do? You will be victorious. You will triumph if you are following, if you are being led by God. Now, this word for triumph, There in verse 14, I like the word. Uh, It says this, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. But I got to talk a little bit about this word. Sometimes in the scriptures, when Paul's writing, he's not just using a word. I mean, we say the word triumph, we say, oh, victory. But in their mind, when they would read this, when they heard the word triumph, when they heard this, this word, it meant something to them. There was, a, there was a mental picture, an image that went along with this word. And I need to explain to you what it is because it'll help you understand this victory that we're talking about even more. The word triumph is tied to a Roman triumphal parade or a Roman procession of victory. It's it's tied to something victorious, a Roman victory parade. Now, let me explain it to you. A Roman general, if you were a general in the Roman army, the highest honor that you could receive, the greatest significant thing that you could get would be a victory march or a a triumphant parade through the city of Rome, through the streets of Rome, and ending up at the capital of Rome. That would be the greatest thing that you could ever receive, the greatest award you could ever get. And in that parade, you are the one being honored. You were, the one, you were the one that have accomplished what you set out to accomplish. Now, in order for a Roman general to have one of these triumphant parades, there were certain things that must happen. The general must be the commander who was in the field of battle with the men, not sitting behind a desk, not giving orders from the next city over, but the one who was in battle with the men. And that was the first thing that had to happen. The second thing, their mission had to be completely fulfilled. Nothing left undone. Everything was done. It was completely fulfilled. The third thing, at least 5,000 of your enemies had to be defeated in a single battle. The fourth thing, a foreign land or a foreign territory had to be taken into Roman custody. So in other words, you had to accomplish something that caused the Roman government to grow, to grow larger. You've done something to benefit them. 
And the last thing, the Roman Senate had to approve it. Many people applied and were denied. The Roman Senate had to agree it. So in this victory march, in this triumphal march, there was also a certain order that everybody would go. There was a procession through the streets. It was very, very, very uh, festive, and there was a certain order. The first group of people to walk through, they were the state officials in the Senate. They're the ones that approved the parade. Naturally, they're going to go first. They're the ones that said, yes, this, this meets the requirements. The second group were the trumpeters. They would trumpet to let everybody know the parade's on the way. The third group. The third group was all the spoils from the land. All the things they took from the land, all the things that they had defeated, the land they defeated, all the, the, the valuables that they had taken. If you're familiar and you know that when Titus came against the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, he had a triumphant march when he got back to Rome. There's, a, there's an archaeological point called Titus's arch. And on the arch is engraved his triumphant march. And you can see the Roman army carrying the menorah. You can see the Roman army carrying the table of showbread. You can see them carrying these things back. It's depicted for them in a, uh, in a sculpture there called Titus's Arch. After that, they had their drawings, any models they had made, any citadels or ships, any pieces, things, memorabilia type stuff. After that, there was a white bull was due for a sacrifice. It wasn't to our God. It was to the false gods. And following the white bull were the captives and the leaders from the conquered land. They would be in chains bound for prison, but most likely headed for death. They would walk behind. Can you imagine? The whole town is joyous, festival, but yet they're walking in chains. They're bound. Two different perspectives on the parade. Following that, the musicians. Following the musicians, the priests were there, the, false, the priests of the false gods. And they would carry something that's significant in this passage as well. They would carry censers, with, censures, the, the, they would put incense and it would, it would burn incense. And it, would, it would give out an aroma. And as they would, the priests would walk through the streets, they would swing these back and forth and it would create the aroma of this incense. It would fill the air everywhere, all around them. Maybe you've been to some churches still do that. They, they carry those things and, and it, it has a, an odor, an aroma that goes with them. And following that was the general himself. He was on a chariot pulled by four horses and following him was his family and following him was the victorious army crying out in triumph. What an amazing sight it would have been to see. But I want you to know something. The Apostle Paul's using this illustration. He's painting a picture for us. He's painting something so now that we can go back and see what he's talking about. When the Apostle Paul says we will be led in triumph. Think about that. He's talking about this triumphant parade through the streets of Rome. He's saying, us as believers are going to be led in triumph. Amen. The conquering general is Jesus himself. It's him that we're, he's the one that's triumphed. He sees Christ marching in triumph throughout the world. He's come to the world. He's taken the land and himself is that he's in that conquering train. It's a triumph which Paul is certain and nothing can change it. It's happening. Paul literally sees himself as sharing in the triumph of Jesus. The, he's a captain in the Lord's army. And Paul is one of the Lord's officers. Amen. He's also telling us something there. He makes a promise. He says, you will be triumphant Amen. if you will be led by God in Jesus Christ. He makes that promise. He makes it clear. The apostle Paul followed his general, Jesus Christ, through the battles. And he was led into victory. I think if I could explain this passage, the first part of it, in our words, Paul would say, I was depressed, I was anxious, I was worried, I couldn't find Titus, but I followed the Lord, and the Lord led me to Macedonia, and I found Titus, and I found the victory I was looking for. That's the temporary one, but there's coming an eternal one as well. 
Paul's being, he's making these statements, it's unbelievable. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, if you follow Jesus through the battles in your life, you also will be triumphant. The only way you will lose is if you fail to follow. If you choose not to follow, let me be clear. It doesn't mean that you will avoid the battle. It doesn't mean the battle's going to go away. It doesn't mean the battle will be easy. It doesn't mean that nothing ever bad's going to happen. It doesn't mean you won't have financial problems. Look at the Apostle Paul's life. Did he have more than one battle in his life? Sure he did. Prison, shipwreck, chains, you name it, he fought it. But he was triumphant through every one of them. Every one of them to the end of his life, he was triumphant. We too have that same option if we choose to follow Christ. As long as Jesus is the one leading. One man put it this way. He said, though they may suffer setbacks and discouragement, believers' ultimate triumph is certain. They will march victoriously in the Lord Jesus Christ, triumph on that glorious day when the heavenly choir cries out. The kingdom of the Lord has become the kingdom of our Lord and in his Christ and in his Christ he will reign forever and ever. It's Revelation chapter 11, the seventh trumpet sounds, all of heaven is crying out. We're in the throne room of the Lord at that point, crying out, he will reign forever and ever. That's the ultimate triumph. And listen to what Paul writes about the triumph and victory that you have right now. Colossians chapter 2.13 says, and you, and you, I'm a you. Any other you's out there? Raise your hand if you're a you. Okay, this is all to, this is all to the you's, okay? And you, being dead in your trespass, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, and listen, triumphing over them in it. He's triumphant. In him we're triumphant. Romans 8.35 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written for your sake? We are killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in these things we are more than conquerors. Paul was more than a conqueror. If you are in Christ this morning, you are more than a conqueror. If you are not in Christ, you need to get in Christ quickly so you too can be more than a conqueror. Now with that background, with that picture in your mind, let me read this passage to you again out of 2 Corinthians. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, but to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. As this Roman triumphant procession wound through the streets of Rome, remember I told you about the priests. They had a censure with them and they were swinging it back and forth. And what did I say? The fragrance was coming out. Everybody was getting a whiff of what was being put with the, 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 the incense that was coming out of there. But to different people, that smelled a different way. To those that were there in Rome celebrating victory, oh, it smells so good. Oh, it's sweet. Can you smell that? That smells like victory. It's, it's a sweet. But to those who had been captured, 
those who were marching with chains on their hands and their feet, what did they smell? They smelt death. They smelt defeat. They didn't want it. They didn't like that smell. You ever notice how smells stick with you? Certain, certain smells, like, man, I'll never forget the smell of that. I mean, my background was in law enforcement. I can tell you, I'm not going to go there. Never mind. I won't go to that smell. Back to the script. That, see, that wasn't in my notes. I almost got off track here. <laughs> That's what Paul's referring to when he says, through us, God diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. He's capitalizing here on the imagery of this Roman parade. He's applying it to the Christian life. He's saying, as you and I follow the Lord Jesus, as we walk in victory, everywhere we go, we're giving off an aroma. We're giving off a smell, some of us worse than others. We're diffusing the fragrance of his knowledge. We carry the knowledge of God with us. We're following the Lord. And as we go into crowds, as we go out into the world, other people are sensing what's going on in our life. Paul says this fragrance, it's different things to different people. To some people, it's encouraging, it's uplifting. Ah, I'm so moved by watching the faith that you step out in. To other people, they don't want anything to do with it. We don't like it. Don't, come, don't talk to me about that, Jesus. I don't want to hear that. Different, it's, the same, it's the same principle that Paul's giving us there. It says we're diffusers. We don't have to create it. It just comes out of us. You know what a diffuser is? My, my wife, is, uh, she likes those essential oils. And he, See, guys, most guys, any ladies into essential oils here? A few of you, yeah. They, they, you have these little funny-looking things that you put in there, and ours are like pointed, and, and she puts a few drops of oil in, she plugs it in, and the whole house smells like whatever it is she put in there. You know, If you're sick, she puts a certain kind. If you have congestion, she puts a different kind, and it's supposed to help with all that kind of stuff. It, whatever you put in there, whatever is inside is what's diffused. Your life is the same way. Whatever is inside is what you're giving off. Whatever you, whatever, whatever, you don't have to create it. It's, it's already in you. You're giving off an aroma. You're giving off a fragrance. What do you smell like? I don't mean, I, you know, I didn't take a shower this morning. I bet, no, I'm not talking about that. Spiritual fragrance. When people get around you, when people are close to you, when people get, and I, I'm not talking, when they get close to you, not, not in physical, when they get close enough to see what your life is really like. Amen. When they get close enough to really look in and, and, and begin to know who you really are. What kind of fragrance are you giving off? Is it a spiritual fragrance? When people get near, do they smell the gospel? Are we sharing the gospel? Can they smell the fruit, the spiritual fruit blooming in your life? The fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control. Do they, is that the odor that's been given, being given off in your life? Or are you giving off more of a fleshly fragrance? Is there something that you're giving off that's more of my, I don't know, gossip, selfishness, uh, Filthy language. Well, what, what, is, what is it that's coming off of you? What's coming out of you? Yes. What is it? That's what he's talking about. Can the people, can the people that get near you, can they see the hand of God leading you? Amen. Let's say you're going through a tough situation. Do they see your reliance on the Lord? Or do they simply see someone who's complaining about the situation that God they're supposed to be worshiping has them in? You see, that's your fragrance. Let's say it is tough. They see you praising the Lord through it. They see you worshiping. Maybe you're struggling with something. Maybe there's something that you're battling with this morning. Are you still praising God? Have you chose to do that? Amen. Or do they see somebody going, oh, I just, I wish this wasn't my life. Amen. I, wish, I, wish, I, wish my life was, I wish my life looked more like that person's life. I, <laughs> I wish I had more of, of what they have. You know? And God says, but that's not what I want for you. 
I've got a life for you, and I've got a plan for you, and I've got a purpose for you, and in order to make you ready, I've got to get you through this, and once I get you through this, it's going to build a testimony, and you'll be able to share with other people, there's, there's something I'm doing here. And then we too often are like, well, I don't like that. Let, Lord, let, and then we take the driver's seat. Lord, let me tell you what you need to do in my life. Let me show you how it needs to be done. What fragrance are you giving off? I run into a lot of people, especially Christians. They're stressed out. They're anxious. And you know what? Sometimes it's over things the Lord never called them to do. The Lord never brought it into their life. It's something they looked at and thought, well, that'd be a good idea. I think I'll volunteer over there. I think I'll get involved here. Well, I think I'll go do this. You see, what do we talk about being led and following? If I'm going to be led, that means I have to wait for the order. What does a good servant do? Waits for the orders of the master. And how do you know you're a good servant? The way you respond when someone treats you like one. Amen. Ooh, we don't like that, do we? No, I'll serve him, but I ain't serving you. No, we serve where he calls us to serve. We do what he calls us to do. That's what it means to be led. If we're the one in the driver's seat, he's our co-pilot. I don't want a co-pilot, I need a pilot. <laughs> Learn this principle, and this is important. If right now, this morning, you're sitting here, and you are where the Lord has you, and you are where the Lord wants you, I'm going to tell you, do not leave that spot until you know that you know that you know the Lord is leading you away from that spot. I have watched too many people be right where the Lord plants them, and then a new opportunity shows up, then something comes up, a new, a new job, a new career, a new town, a new husband, wife, new whatever. Don't leave where God has you. If you don't know if you're where God wants you to be, then you need to get there. Find out where he wants you to be, and you get there. But once you're there, you stay there. Don't get lured away by the enemy, because he, wants to teach, he will seek to take you away. If you are not absolutely sure the Lord is leading you, then you're not following you're guessing. We don't want to be guessers. We want to be followers. Amen. We want to be led. Lord, what do you have for me? And if you find yourself constantly defeated and struggling, you're not following. You're not obeying. In other words, here's how it works. Let's say you're struggling with something. The Lord says, all right, I don't want you to go there. And you go, yeah, but I want to go there. I got to go see my friends. No, no, I don't want you to go there. No, but I have to go there. No, if you go there, you're going to be tempted. If you're tempted, you're going to fall. No, no I'm going to go there. I won't be tempted. You see, that's, that's you leading and not following. Following says, I'm going there, and the Lord says, no, I don't want you to go there. That conviction of the Holy Spirit says, I don't want you to go. And you go, okay, I won't go. That's following. That's what following looks like. Right. You see, when, you, when you're leading, you're going, come on. It's like you got the Lord on a leash. You're dragging him along with you. That's not the way it should be. Yes. And I know that as I lay these things out, as I tell you, you've got to diffuse the knowledge of God. You've got to be a, a follower and not a leader. You, you, go, you go, that's hard. How do I do that? Look at the end of verse 16. And who is sufficient for these things? He asked the question, who's sufficient? Now, we've got to keep reading because he's not going to answer the question until he gets down to verse 5. So I'm going to read a lot, and then we're going to find the answer to that question. Verse 17, for we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation? To you, or letters of commendation from you, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. 
Let me just summarize that section very quickly. Paul's making a point. He's saying, hey, I'm not peddling the word of God. I'm not selling the word of God. I'm not, to, I'm not here to benefit in some way from the word of God. That's not always true in some churches today. Some churches, they do peddle the word of God. It's all about the church. It's about the ministry. It's about the pastor. It's not about the people. You see, the church is about the people, not the building, not the ministry, not the pastor. And they peddle the word of God to get something. They want your money. They want whatever they want, your volunteer service, whatever they want. It has to be about the Lord. It's always about him. And Paul says, I don't need a letter of commendation. I don't need, in that day, it was common for them to carry around letters of recommendation, letters of commendation. They're called epistles. And Paul did it when he was arresting Christians. He had letters from the Sanhedrin giving them permission. And Paul goes, I don't need anything like that. You are my letter. I've poured Christ into you. You're growing and you're changing. That's all the testimony that I need. I don't need, I don't need man's permission, essentially, is what he's saying there. He said he wanted to tell them, the letters of your life, it's not in ink. It's written on your heart. It's something that's written inside of you. And there in verse 5, Paul answers the question, who is sufficient for these things? Who's able to be led in triumph by Christ? Who can diffuse the fragrance of his knowledge in every place? Look what he says in verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anyone as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Who is sufficient? None of us apart from the Lord. None of us apart from the Lord. We're not able to do those things on our own. He says our sufficiency the way that you diffuse Christ is through him. He is in you. It's what's, what's inside is just coming out. This is not something you work at. You can't make it happen. You can't force it to happen. It's naturally going to happen. He says, but there's a reason for this. He says, why do we do such a thing? He says, because we're ministers of the new covenant. We're ministers of the new covenant. The new covenant says that you and I can have a relationship with God by the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. We have to believe that. It says that we're sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God. If we believe on Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. If we will now follow him, we will walk in victory. Amen. Too many Christians aren't following. Amen. Oh, they believe. Their sins are forgiven, but they're not following. They're not letting the Lord Jesus Christ lead their life. Instead, they're leading their life. Christ is saying no, and you're saying yes. Christ is saying go, and you're saying no. That's what happens. The letter here, it refers to the outward. The law was on the outside. In that day, in the, in through, through Judaism, in the Old Testament, you, were, you, 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 you brought glory to the Lord by keeping the law. You did what was right on the outside. When Jesus came, what did he do? He taught the Sermon on the Mount. What did the Sermon on the Mount do? It said, hey, worry about the inside. Adultery. Remember what he said? If you've thought of it, if you've done it, if you've lusted, you've committed adultery in your heart. Murder. If you hate it, you've committed murder in your heart. He said, I want to deal with the inside. That's what the new covenant is dealing with. The Spirit refers to the inward. The Spirit is dwelling inside of us. The Spirit comes upon us and empowers us to accomplish God's will for our life. You can't do it. You couldn't you could not decide on your own I'm going to do these things I'm going to emanate the aroma of Christ I'm going to always I'm going to be guaranteed victory in myself you have no power to do that on your own but what you do have is a promise from a God who says if you'll follow me I will guarantee you victory and I will put my spirit inside of you and you will be able to give off an aroma that no one understands and I will minister to people through you if you will let me but you and I have to be willing to do that 
Now, as our time this morning comes to a close, I want you to consider a couple of things. Ask yourself these questions. Am I on the path to triumph? Am I on the path to victory because I'm following God? Or has your, been life, has your life, oh, I have a life of faith, but I don't have a life of obedience. Second question I want you to ask yourself is this. What's the fragrance in my life? What am I giving off spiritually? When people get around, when they look in and they see who I am, And if you don't like what it is, I'm going to tell you how to change it real easy. Follow him. And it'll change. He changes it. Now, I'm going to give you one more thing, and we're going to close with this. How do you know if you're following or leading? I'm going to tell you how I can usually tell it in my life. I can go back to my prayer life. Number one, does it exist? How, if, if I'm, I can't be following if I'm not praying. If I'm not praying, I'm, when I'm praying, I'm trying to discern God's will. If I don't know God's will, how could I be following? When I'm not praying, I'm like, I don't care. I'm doing what I want to do. And if I am praying, I go back and I look at, what am I saying? Is it, Lord, do this? Lord, will you do that? Lord, will you fix this? Lord, will you do that? Lord, can you heal this? Can you shave this? Can you tang that? Whatever it is. Or is it, Lord, I need to know what you want me to do in this situation? And I'm willing to sit quietly and listen. Lord, I need to know where you want me to go. How do you want me to handle the next step in this process? How is it, where, where do you want me, Lord, do you really want me to move? You need to confirm that in your word for me. Lord, is this person the one I should marry? I need to know that for sure from you. I can't guess because I'm not following. You see, that's where I can always find out. My prayer life will always tell me what my true heart is. And I bet, I bet yours will too. If it's not existent, you're not following. It doesn't exist. If it is existing, ask what you're praying for. Is it God's will? Are you trying to discern his will and get his will done on earth or you simply want your will done in heaven? That's what it needs to be. Ask yourself, am I on the path to victory because I'm following the Lord? If you're not, get there. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, come see me afterwards. I'd love to introduce you. And Ask yourself, what's the fragrance of my life when people get close to me spiritually? Do they see someone praising God in a difficult circumstance? Do they see somebody struggling? What do they see? And if you want to change it, start following. It's not that hard. But yet it's so difficult, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, your word has a way of piercing our heart. Has a way of challenging us and showing us. Lord, we didn't come here this morning to feel good. We came here to hear from you. So Lord, as you spoke to each of us in different ways, Lord, I know you spoke to me in the preparation of this Bible study as you spoke to all of us in different ways this morning, because we know that your word does not turn void. May we respond in obedience by following you. May we not take it as a suggestion or a good idea. And may you help us. In Jesus' name, amen.